Amen. Yeah, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. Hey, thank you, Jenna. Wow, that is some good news after last week. Hey, thank you all once again for braving the weather to come out here. We are glad that you are here um, in the bitter cold. And I am excited that we get to, that I specifically uh, get to preach on this passage. Because if you were to ask me over the last 10 or so years, hey, what's your favorite passage in all the Bible? I would uh, very quickly tell you uh, that it's found in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And our passage for today is smacked right, uh, right in the middle of that. I mean, this is a passage that has um, the worst of bad news that we heard last week, but it has the best of the good news that we're going to talk about today. It is just incredibly rich with the core of the gospel. And so we get to dive into that today. And so last week when it was snowy and the topic was depressing, the good news is, is it's, well, this isn't good news. It's snowy still today, but, but we've got amazing good news to go over today. And so uh, I, I want to set it up like this, a picture of Ephesians 2. So uh, you are all aware, I'm sure, um, uh, because you exist in our culture, you're all aware that, that fixing up your own house or the idea of being a DIY person to do some home rental, like that's the thing, right? Like if you post pictures of that, they have TV shows all over the place. But you probably also know that there are different levels of do-it-yourselfers. There's different levels of DIYers. Like for me, I come in at the very, very bottom rung. My wife and I, we've lived in three houses. And um, in all three of the houses that we've lived in since we've been married here in Omaha, um, we have perfect... Purposely chosen to to move into move in ready houses. Like uh, I'm going to move into something where I need to move a wall or something. I move into houses where all I need to do is come in, and what we do is um, we uh, we buy some stylish rugs, we put them down the floor, uh, we get some cool artwork, we put it up on the windows, we hang some some cool looking plants, and then maybe the extent of our DIY work is that we buy our own paint and use our own paintbrushes and put it on ourselves. Like that's what we do to renovate our house. And I think it looks, our houses look pretty good, but that's like kindergarten level, right? And then you move up uh, several notches and you have a guy like my dad. My dad can do kind of, he's one of those guys who can kind of do anything and everything. I thought I would grow up and be like him and I just wasn't. That's just the truth. I just have to face that. But my dad has every tool that you can ever imagine. He has a four car garage at home that is probably bigger than the first house that we lived in. And the dude has tools everywhere. And what he did, he has this like hundred and some year old house. And um, he's done several projects over the 30 years that they've lived there, 40 years they've lived there. He's done several projects in their house to fix it up, but hasn't done anything super crazy until a few years ago. uh, He actually cut a hole in the wall of the dining room, the exterior wall, by the way, and he built on, with his own bare hands and his own tools, built on a 750 square foot addition of a living room by himself. He like put up the studs, he put down the floors, he put in the insulation and, and hung the drywall and everything. He had somebody to come in to do a, some, of the, some of the side work, you know, the, or the, the more detailed work. But, but he is like a legit do-it-yourselfer. He is, he is doing a legit renovation. Now, that's pretty impressive. But then 
you have people, and this isn't, this isn't do-it-yourself level. This is like companies do this. You have someone like, well, you know Chip and Joanna Gaines from Fixer Upper, right? When they come onto the scene, you've seen these houses, right? They come up, and the yard is a wreck. The exterior is uglier than ugly. Oh, you go inside, and not only is everything outdated, but stuff is like falling apart inside. And when they start working on this, the renovation work that they do, they like gut it. They take out all the walls. They're re-putting in walls in different places. They're taking the kitchen from over here, and they're putting the kitchen over here, a brand new one. They're putting in bathrooms on multiple levels. They're going outside and completely putting on a new porch with new landscaping, the exterior of the wall. Everything is completely uh, brand new and changed. It is a complete and total renovation. You've seen this, right? Well, in Ephesians 2, the picture that this passage paints of God's saving work is that kind of complete and total renovation. It's not just a little facelift with some paint. It's not even an addition on to the house to, 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 you know, add Jesus onto our lives, but it is rather a, a complete and total renovation. In Ephesians scholar, Klein Snodgrass, strange name, I know, but he is an Ephesian scholar. I think he hits the nail on the head, and he says that the issue with many American Christians, and this text in Ephesians 2, is that we look at it, and we don't think the bad news is really as bad as it's described, as Andrew described last week. And because of that, when we look at the good news of Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, or 4 through 10, we look at it, and the good news really isn't that great either. And when we live in this world, when the bad news isn't that bad, the good news isn't that good, we think, man, we, you know, we're really pretty good people, and I, we got pretty good motives, and all we need is a little Jesus facelift to kind of turn us a few degrees to the right, and then we'll be good. But here is what's at stake. Ephesians 2 says something different. It says it's a complete and total renovation, because I think that if we don't see how bad the bad news is, and how good the good news is. I think that we are going to, uh, we're just going to be people who are bored with our faith. We're going to be people who, who look at Jesus and see him as a convenient add-on at times uh, when we're maybe in a time of trouble or in a time of need. And honestly, if we don't see the bad news as that bad and the good news is, is that good, I think we'll probably even be a people who, who see Jesus as being a nuisance to us as often as he is seen as a savior to us. But if we do grasp it, if we can grasp this great chasm between the good news and and the bad news and the good news and how far Jesus has taken us, I think this will give us real hope. This fact will give us real joy. We'll be able to come in here on Sunday mornings and sing the words of these songs with our hearts and actually mean them. We'll be able to come in here and get excited about hearing from God's word on Sunday mornings. We will actually uh, be We'll actually be a people that just ooze out with joy. I think we'll want to give our lives to the very cause of the gospel. And so Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 is, is really a call to open our, open our eyes. Open our eyes to the goodness of the gospel. And as we look at this, and hopefully as our eyes, are the eyes of our hearts are enlightened as we look at this, uh, we're going we're gonna to see three things in this passage. We're going to see first that there is a, a, in this renovation project, that there is a renovator, someone who comes in and does the work. And then we're going to see the work of renovation, what actually happens in us and to us. And then we're going to see the result of this 
renovation. So we're going to see a renovator, the renovation, and the result of this renovation. And we're going to look at this together by looking at that first one. Who is it that does this? Who is it that does this renovation? So we're going to get the the first uh, verse and a half up here, starting in Ephesians 2, verse 4. And here's what it says. It says, But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now, last week, if you were here, if you braved the weather last week, uh, Andrew had a kind of a tough job. He came in here and he told us the depressing news, the bad news. He told us that we were dead in sin. If you remember the three D's that he went over, he said that we were dead in sin. We were deceived by the evil one, and that we were deserving of wrath. That's about as bad as you could have it. He said that we were essentially walking zombies. We were humans who were walking, but, but we were really dead spiritually inside. We had no ability to walk after God, but instead we walked in our own ways. Instead of listening to God's voice, we listened to Satan's voice. We listened to the lies he tells us. We told us. He, we listened to, to what the world tells us, and we were walking a different direction from God. And because of that, because of that deadness inside, we actually deserved the judgment and the wrath of God. We are people by nature who are self-seeking. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 would tell us. Our spiritual condition is as bleak as a Nebraska winter. Is that language that you understand? Like, you probably get that on a day like today. Like, I mean, Are you kidding me? Every Sunday, after every Sunday, after every Sunday, we come in here and it's snowing and it's cold and there's ice and then there's more snow and then there's more cold and there's more ice and it just keeps going and it keeps going. You shovel more, you scrape more windshields. It keeps happening. And as hopeless and depressed as us Nebraskans get in late February when we're like, is this ever going to end? How bad could it be? This is kind of like the state of our spiritual condition. But in verse 4, It comes in with a complete and utter contrast where it says these first two words, but God. These two words, but God, are the equivalent of us waking up tomorrow morning and it being a sunny, green, birds chirping, flowers blooming, 75 degree day. That's the kind of contrast we're talking about here. You guys can't even imagine that. You're like, wait, what is that? What's grass? I don't even remember. Yeah, exactly. Like this is a complete contrast. It says, but God. And the next couple phrases after that, it uses uh, to describe God, who he is and what his uh, motivations are. And, And Here's what I want to say before, we, before I describe this, this idea of him being rich in mercy and because of his great love. I want you to really take these to heart. Like, I think we, we, we look at some of these words like mercy, we're like, oh yeah, that's that churchy word or that's that biblical word. But this is an opportunity when we study words like this in Scripture that describe who God is. It's an opportunity for us to actually know who our God is. This one that we call Heavenly Father this is really what he's like. So when you go through the throes of this next week, and maybe your week is mundane, maybe your week is amazing, maybe you're going through trials in your week, you can know that these things are true about God, that he's rich in mercy, and he has great love for you. Listen to this. So let's talk about this fact that he's rich in mercy first. So the definition of this word in this context, that God is rich in mercy toward us while we were sinners, it, 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 it means that He has compassion on those who are suffering. Notice it doesn't say that God just decides to to show up and be nice to us just because, 
you know, he, he just does it. But God shows us mercy. He had compassion on us. While we were suffering from our self-inflicted wounds, he showed us compassion. You would think that if God was someone who was getting sinned against, if God was somebody who was getting rebelled against, he would look at us and be angry or at least disgusted or maybe even want to just do away with us, to push us away. You're getting, you know, to look at us and say, you're getting what you deserve. Like, you did this. You ran from me. You're experiencing the wreckage of this. But instead, He doesn't give us what he deserves. He shows mercy. And he does it with a sense of compassion. And you know who the best people in the world are at showing compassion? It's people who have experienced something similar to you. Maybe if you've lost a loved one before. Who's the best person at showing compassion in that moment? It's someone who has lost a loved one the same way, right? Or for me, when when this paralyzing and gripping anxiety gets a hold of me in certain times and high stress times. Man, there is nothing that speaks to my heart and my soul like someone else who has struggled with the same gripping and paralyzing anxiety. Someone who can show true compassion from experience. And get this, God's heart moves with compassion toward us because his son Jesus has experienced suffering from sin. Think about it. He has experienced the the awfulness of our sin. He has been sinned against himself. And not only that, but he has paid for the pain and the penalty of our sins. He relates to us. He knows the feeling of feeling the pain of sin, and he intervenes anyway. God is merciful. He's rich in mercy. Next, it says that he has a, a great love with which he has loved us. His motivation toward us is a sense of great love. Now, for those of you who are married, um, have you ever noticed, or you don't even have to be married, maybe you've been in a relationship before, have you noticed that the more you get to know someone in a relationship, or the more you experience, excuse me, the more you experience together, the more you find out about that other person? Like, at first, on a first date, or in my case, on a blind date that I went on with my wife, you don't know anything about them, right? And you put up a good first front. You come in there, you've got your teeth brushed, you may have been using whitening strips to impress the other person, right? You ironed your clothes like two different times, you curled your hair like as you're getting ready for prom. You may even like thought through a God story that you could tell to impress them with your spiritual maturity, right? I know some of you have done that. Some of you, that's a college pastor right there talking about his college students giving me an amen. So, like, that's the first date, but you fast forward a little bit, and maybe it's 10 years later, and it's not quite like that anymore, right? Like, you've seen them at their worst. You may have heard them string together some words that are not a church appropriate, right? You may have smelled them at their worst before, and that's just the truth. I mean, it really is. You may have have seen them throw something across the kitchen in anger before. You've seen their road rage before, right? It can be pretty bad sometimes. But in spite of that, in marriage, you are called to love them anyway. And God has loved us. He has kept on loving us anyway. Providence, our God has a great love for us. He has seen us at our 
worst. He knows our twisted motivations in our heads. He knows our twisted thoughts. He knows every secret that you have. And he has loved you anyway. He loved you all the way to the cross. And he unconditionally loves you today if you are in Christ. And one thing, uh, as I just studied this, this idea of being rich in mercy and love that I needed to understand as I studied this, it kind of popped off the pages after a while, It is the fact that God doesn't just tolerate me. He actually not only loves me, but he likes me. Like, it's not a thing that, that he shows up and he's like, oh, here's Jared again. And he goes and mumbles cuss words under his breath because he's so frustrated at me because I disobey so often. Or he doesn't get up and get ready to work on me the next day when I wake up. And he's like, oh, man, here's this guy again. He's like, I don't know. I'm going to have to put up with this stuff again. But God actually... He compassionately and lovingly moves toward you and and joyfully enjoys loving you and working together with you and changing you and transforming you. Doesn't this take a little weight off? Like the fact that he actually likes working on you. He likes you. These feelings and emotions of being merciful and loving, uh, he actually has those feelings toward you in Christ. We were dead in sins, but God, the merciful and loving God moved toward you. That is the story of the renovator, the one who's doing the work. I want to look at the work that he has done in this, this renovation work. So let's look at this next section. This is the renovation in verses 5 and verse 6. It's right up here. I'm going to read it for you. I'm going to try to explain this to you because it's, it's kind of crazy. So it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we've heard that in verse 1. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now there are three verbs that it says that he does as part of his renovation work. And I put them in bold up here and we're going to get to them in a second. But before we do that, I want want to just prep our minds a little bit because in the book of Ephesians, um, there is this mysterious concept of this union with Christ that it keeps talking about. It's in the sermon or in our our series title that we have, this mysterious union of Christ and his church. And this idea is over and over and over, if you read, you'll see phrases like with Christ or in Christ. And there's this idea that we have been joined together with Jesus. If you have placed your faith in him, you have been joined together with him in this interesting, cool, privileged, uh, mysterious kind of way. And um, I'm going to try to, before we go into the actual explanations of what these three mean, um, I want to give you a little example of this. So as a lifelong uh, Michael Jordan fan, I'm old, so I like Michael Jordan, not LeBron James. Um, I found this kind of interesting. So I found on the internet fairly recently that there was um, this unopened, unblemished uh, package of cards with a see-through outside um, that's never been touched before. Um, And this pack of cards was from Michael Jordan's rookie year with the Chicago Bulls. And it's a a team pack. So it's got all of the team of the Chicago Bulls in uh, 1986 that's on there. And, and they're trying to sell it, forget this, $175,000. Uh, 
Like, is that not ridiculous? Like, I'm a diehard fan, but I mean, come on, people. Can't you figure out something? I could buy another house in Midtown over here for 175. Anyway, it's ridiculous. But you got this whole team in there. You have Michael Jordan. He's on the front. It's a see-through cover, so you can see Michael on the front. And, and do you know who the other players are that are in there? Neither do I. No one cares, right? No one knows their names. No one cares. But do you know if you took those 11 cards out of that package and you put them all together, you took them to some card shop. Do they still have card shops? I don't know if they do. But if you did, you tried to sell them on eBay or something, you know how much you'd get? Probably about $3.75, right? But because they are grouped together with the one and only MJ on the front, and they're in this package, and it is unblemished. Because of that, they are included in this treasure that is worth $175,000. And these mediocre mid-80s NBA players can revel in the fact that their card is a part of this treasure because they are included with Michael Jordan in this. They are with him, and they share in his value. And that is a little bit of the concept of being with Christ, because we are with him, we are united with him, and we share in this together. Now, with that lens in mind, I want to look at this, because each of these phrases ends with, with Christ or with him. So first, you look at made, made us alive together with him. This is the same idea. This is what Jesus has done to us. It's the same idea that, that when Jesus walked up to Lazarus and he called out his name and, and he supernaturally like made him come alive from the dead. And so what this is referring to is saying that Jesus was physically dead, but then God made him alive. And because we have trusted in him, we were also made alive in a spiritual sense on that day. No longer dead to sin. What happened to Jesus physically, we share in spiritually in this mysterious way. That means that when we believe in Jesus, we don't believe just in this fact that Jesus was made alive on that day in the tomb. But it actually means that when his eyes opened and he woke up, because we are with him and because we are in him, it means that we were made alive on that day too. We were made alive spiritually. This is kind of crazy, right? Next it says that we were raised, uh, we were raised with him or raised with Christ. It's a similar concept, but on the first Easter Sunday, Jesus resurrected. And when he did, he rose victorious over sin and death. And Jesus physically conquered, through his, conquered death through his resurrection, raising victorious. And in that moment, we received a spiritual victory of resurrection. Our hearts were resurrected. And Jesus raised us up with him so that death no longer has a hold on us. So that we will never be beaten by death because we are with him. And finally, the third one, it says that we are seated with him. <clears throat> Just in the, in the last chapter of Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, verse 20, it says that, um, that, that he raised him, God raised him from the dead, Jesus that is, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is Named Jesus ascended into heaven and he took his place on his throne, ruling and reigning over everything. And because we are with Christ and because we are 
in Christ, we get this chance to be kind of co-rulers with him. We have no business being there. We have no pedigree to be there, but we get to somehow participate in Jesus' almighty power and authority. We are physically present here, but, but in a way we are spiritually, already spiritually citizens of heaven with Jesus. This is kind of blowing your mind. It's kind of crazy, right? I process it this week. I'm like, man, if this is all true, if I'm in Christ and this is all true, man, why do I get so stressed out this week? Why am I worried about tomorrow? Like, like this is amazing news. And this idea of being made alive and being raised up with him and seated with him, this is a spiritual reality that is already true for us. But at the same time, we can look forward and know that one day in eternity, when we are with him, it will be completely and wholly and fully true that we will be unhinderedly unified to him. We're like a bunch of no-name basketball players who get carried along by the power and the prestige of another. Jesus has included us in him and with him. Now in Ephesians, it doesn't really give us a next step, an application for what to do after this, but there's a parallel passage in Colossians that I think gives us a very simple and easy kind of next thing to do, or at least a challenge. In Colossians 1 through 2, I want to read it for you. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And let me explain this uh, this way. So when Carrie and I moved back from Austin, Texas to Omaha about seven years ago, um, our physical presence was here in Omaha, but our hearts were left in Austin. We were all about it. If you uh, interacted with us in that first year that we moved back, I need to apologize to you because we were so annoying about it. As in, every one of the mugs that we had in our house either had Austin or Texas on it. We, We just proclaimed it loud and proud. We always ate fajitas and burritos and tacos and Mexican food. And when we did go out for Mexican food in Omaha, we would cast judgment on it and make fun of it and scoff at it because it wasn't as good as it was down south. We made our own homemade salsa from scratch like they make down there. We made it every single week and served it to all the guests that we had coming into our house. We did it all the time. We had these plastic, actually we still have them, these plastic cups that are um, red, white, and blue, and they have a little uh, Texas State on them all the way around with little stars in the middle of them. Um, on, on Fridays when we were home together, we made breakfast tacos. You say breakfast what? Well, that's what they call breakfast burritos. And we were so pretentious that uh, we wanted to still call them breakfast tacos, even though we were in Nebraska and we made them every single week. We'd sneak in y'all into any conversation when we could just to try to seem a little more Texan because our hearts were still there. Even though we were here, it changed how we talked. It changed what we ate. It changed the glasses that we drank. Out. It changed absolutely everything. Most people would call that idolatry or maybe at least an unhealthy obsession, and we just called it love, okay? But could we be more like this with Christ? 
thinking about him, incorporating him into our lifestyle, incorporating him into the way that we talk. Even though we are physically here, we are with him there in our hearts and in our minds, that we are focusing on him. Could people that come into contact with us recognize that we are Jesus people because we are so obsessed with him? Could our fears and anxieties subside because we know that we are in him? Could our hope and our joy increase because we are in him? I mean, could the next big thing in culture or the next big thing in technology be no big thing to us because we are obsessed with Jesus, the ultimate thing, the ultimate object of our affection? Could we be people who love and brag on Jesus? This idea of being in Christ is the renovation work that he does in us. He made us alive. He raised us up with him and he seated us with him. Well, what's it all for? What is God's purpose in doing this? The last verse, verse seven, shows us the result of the renovation or God's desired result. Let's read this together. It says that this all happened so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in, Jesus, in, in Christ Jesus. Excuse me. Now, all this work was done, <clears throat> this renovator uh, overhauling us, doing this massive renovation, all of this was done. This grace shown toward us so that, it says, in the coming ages, so in in this point forward into eternity, God might be able to show us off. He might be able to, to demonstrate or show the riches of his grace toward us. What he's saying is he wants to show us off as the masterpiece of his grace, the trophies of his grace. That's what he wants to do when he does this amazing renovation work, is show us off to everything. Are any of you familiar with the the old MTV show Cribs? Yeah, I know, you're laughing. I feel a little bit embarrassed because this is the second MTV show from like 20 years ago that I've quoted in like two months, but it's okay. I feel a little embarrassed, but it's okay. So what happened is, or what happens in the show is, you know, there's a host that goes into a show, into a celebrity's home, say it's like Beyonce or something, and you go through their house and they show you the tour of their mansion. And uh, inevitably, if you come to a musician's house or uh, uh, like uh, an athlete's house, they'll go into a room that they have kind of their, their trophy room right? And they're like, and Beyonce would be like, oh, here's where, here's the Grammy that I won in this year. And, and here's a framed uh, platinum, uh, my first framed platinum album. And over there, there's another platinum album that I have on the wall. And here's where I got this American Music Award here. And, and they'll show us all of these uh, amazing trophies of all their work. Well, what's happening here in this heavenly scene in verse seven is a little bit the same. God is showing us the best of his best. H.B. Charles Jr. said it a little bit like this. He said, think about walking into to God's, God's mansion in eternity, in heaven, and then interviewing him, and he would say something like, oh, oh you want to see my power in the trophy room? You want to see my power? Look at creation. Look at everything I made. You say, oh, you want to see my love? Oh, look over here. You want to see my love? Look no further than the cross of Jesus. That's my love on display. And you say, oh, you want to see my grace? You want to see my grace shown off? 
look no further than the church. Look no further than this group of people right here. He'd point to us. That is the trophy of his grace. God says, you want to see my amazing grace? You want to see undeserving favor on people? Oh, oh, look over there. Look at that guy, Jared, over there. He's a small town punk kid who was self-righteous for 25 years of his life growing up, who thought he had everything squeaky clean on the outside, and he was messed up on the inside. And you know what I did? After this random open gym basketball game at age 26, I wrecked him on the car ride home, and I showered him with my grace. And you want to know what happened to that modern-day Pharisee from the middle of nowhere? I made him into a pastor. Can you believe that act of grace? Hey, hey, oh, oh, look over here, this, this dude named Andrew over here. He was a pot-smoking baseball player from Norfolk, Nebraska. What, Nor? Yes, Norfolk, the Galilee of the Midwest. Yes, he's... You want to know what I did with him? I made him into this brilliant pastor as well. Now they're leading a church together. Can you believe this amazing grace? You want to see God's grace on display. God himself says, look no further than the people who are filling the seats here today. Look at my people, my church. It's a total renovation. God says, I intervened as the renovator. I renovated them, and now I'm displaying them. We were dead in sin, it says in verse 1, but then he was rich in mercy and had compassion on us. And then with a great love, he loved us in the cross of Jesus. And then through his resurrection, we were made alive in Jesus. And then we were raised up with Jesus. And then we were seated with Jesus also, he can show the amazing kindness of his grace. It is a complete and total renovation. Providence, let us not be a people who are apathetic and bored in our faith. Let us not be a people who are apathetic toward our Savior Jesus and the work he's done. The bad news is bad, but the good news is great. May this be a little bit more of our approach. Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that the good news is so good. We thank you that you didn't just slap a little paint on. We thank you that that you sought in your mercy and your grace to come in and do something completely new. You made dead people alive. You made people who were unable to follow you, able to walk with you. You have called us your sons and daughters. You have promised an inheritance, and you actually want to be with us. How can it be? What an amazing thing. Jesus, would this hit the depths of our heart? And God, if there are people here who have uh, never fully understood this, God, would you plant this seed deep in their hearts and their minds? And would you turn them toward you? Would you open their eyes? Would you make them alive? Would you raise them up spiritually here? Even this morning, God, we thank you so much for the grace that you showered on us. What an amazing piece of good news. And could we walk in it? love it? Could we cherish it? Could we think about it? 
Could we long for you? Could we long uh, to be in your presence, God? Uh, Could we be people who set our minds on things above? We pray this in Jesus' name.